It's funny. People always be like, don't forget about the little people. It's like, why do they refer themselves as little anyway, you know? Why don't you just get big with me? They can see it in my eyes. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of John's Entitled Podcast. I am your host, John. This week's guest for the one-year anniversary of this podcast is Justin Holman. Justin is the lead singer of the band Revis, or formerly of the band Revis. We kind of get into that in a little bit uh, in this conversation. Uh, And Justin also has recently started the Justin Holman Band, or Project. Uh, It's basically a solo worship praise album, and we will get to that in the episode as well. Um, Justin and Revis specifically are a band that, while they haven't been active in a very long time, are still a band that I listen to very... Not obsessively, but uh, Places for Breathing has been in my CD player for a very long time, and since it came out in like '02, which is my senior year, and I just remember falling in love with the production of the album, the lyrics and the vocals. Justin's vocals on that record come through so well, and he has such a great voice, and I've always admired that band, and I always thought that they were destined for great things, and they just sadly never got there, and. I've always kind of wondered what happened. I mean, there was a little bit of the internet presence that we have today. Uh, MySpace was a thing at the time of the band being around. But unlike now where you get a lot of press releases and you know you can follow everybody's social medias in the as individuals of the band and can find out what happened and, or at least their side of things, uh, I think we can point to Finch as kind of an example of, of that in more recent times. Uh, but very much like Finch, when Finch had their their breakup and uh, around the say hello to sunshine and just a lot of that shit, there there wasn't really a whole lot going on with it. They didn't really talk about it; it just happened. And very much is the same with Revis. When that band broke up, it just happened, and there wasn't a whole lot of press or fanfare around it. But by all accounts, I mean it's one of one of my favorite records, and is a thing where I've never found out what happened and. There's just little things here and there, and you know, the band got back together shortly after they broke up, and then broke up again, and we get into that in this conversation, and uh, this podcast has allowed me to talk to some musicians and band people that I've, I've admired for, in some instances, 10 to 15 years at this point, and while a bit surreal to, to actually have a sit-down with Justin, it couldn't have been easier to talk to him, um, and he was really honest about a lot of the Revis stuff, uh, even kind of as you'll hear, taking on some of the responsibility as to why the band broke up and being very sincere and honest about it. So it's it's always interesting when people who don't know me at all, uh, basically complete strangers, are willing to open up to me and kind of divulge some dirt on themselves or, or inner workings of a band that is no longer or maybe still active, depending on you know the band or the guest I've had on. And it's not lost on me. I, I'm very appreciative of the people I've gotten to talk to over this last year. A lot of them have sort of become friends in as much as you can in this digital age we live in. Um, and there are some people that I have on the hook that haven't been on the podcast yet, but I probably text at least once a week or so. And, and I'm just kind of building the rapport. And I think that's something that kind of helps. It's something, you know, as I remember listening when I did the conversation with Greg Thomas of Misery Signals, 
he mentions, you know, that we have been texting throughout the week and it kind of helps build the rapport and make it a little easier to, to do these conversations, mostly on their end, I think. Uh, but it's, it's just crazy to know that some of these people, almost everybody I've had on, I admire it for one thing or another and to kind of consider them friends in, in some instances is, is really crazy. And I know when I listen to a lot of other podcasts and I kind of hear people talking and, and kind of being friends with like Joshua Toomey of the Talk To Me podcast and a few others, getting to, to talk to some of the people you've admired and idol not idolized, I hate using that word, some of the people that you've admired, I guess is the best word, for a long time is kind of crazy and it's very surreal that you are able to have any time to sit there at length with these people and just kind of talk to them. And ask questions that you may have had for 10, 15, 20 years about a song or some music or the band itself that you've loved. And it's just a trip. And it's crazy to know that in this day and age that, you know, anyone can do this. Honestly, that's how this podcast started was me listening to Kevin Smith and Chris Hardwick between Nerdist and Smodcast. And those two always being like, just make your fucking thing. If you want to make something, make it. Podcasts are so easy. No one tells you how to do it or what you can and can't say to just do it. And you'll be amazed that when you get to listen back to it, like the experiences you've had along the way. And I couldn't agree more. This has been something I started doing with another group of friends doing a completely different podcast. And it didn't work necessarily. I wouldn't call it a failure or anything like that because a lot of it taught me what to do and how to be better prepared for this podcast to be consistent with the with the output of an episode and, and constantly trying to get people and so on and so forth. But it's like I said, it's just been a trip to, to know that there are people who listen to this thing. And I know and I've, as I've said numerous times, I know it's not me. It is the guest I have. I am not disillusioned into thinking that anyone finds me remotely interesting, even though I pack a shitload of exposition at the front of these episodes that people may or may not listen to. But anybody who has listened to this podcast over the last year, whether it be one episode all the episodes, a part of the episode, found it on YouTube, watched part of that, commented, shared with a friend, anything. I greatly appreciate it. Like I you just don't know how fucking crazy it is that anyone spends their fucking time listening to this at all. And I hope you really enjoyed the episodes and the and the content that I'm putting out. I think I'm getting better. I think I'm kind of able to to have interesting conversations with people. Uh, most recently my dad listened to the episode that I posted last week, last week with Mike D and I don't think he's ever listened to an episode of the podcast nor a podcast at all, but he was complimenting me and telling me how crazy it is that it just sounds like a conversation between two people like hanging in a living room or whatever, and that there happen to be microphones on recording it. And I agree. And I, and I think that's what a podcast should be. I feel like it should just kind of be a mix between a sort of interview and just hanging out and shooting the shit. I try to find other avenues of things to discuss with some of these people. So maybe you're learning something new from this guest that I have that you didn't know before. That's kind of my goal, but it's kind of crazy. And speaking to last week's episode, I, uh, I'm kind of shocked at everything that happened when I put it out. Uh, I put it out, I'm recording this right now, uh, the intro to this on Sunday, uh, a little bit before Walking Dead comes on. And so as of now, it's been 20, 24 hours. It has been a full week 
since the episode aired. Uh, as of tomorrow, it'll be a full week since basically all the music sites took and latched onto my episode and, and shared it. And I want to clarify one thing first. A lot of people, a lot of the places that shared the the chat said that it was sh- that it started with Loudwire or Metal Injection or Metal Sucks. Like different sites had different places claiming that they were the ones that broke the episode. Uh, I just want to go on record and say that actually it was Wook uh, over at the PRP. Uh, within I think about twenty five to thirty minutes of me posting the episode, the news was up on the PRP. And it was pretty surreal to see it on there. I've done one other thing that's made it onto the PRP, which was my Deftones tribute show, which you've heard me potentially talk about on my Deftones chats with Fallon Bowman of Kitty. But that that made the news on the PRP a handful of years ago. So as of that, that is the only thing I've had make any news sites. The crazy thing is, is I didn't know how far this thing was going to go. One of the reasons I wanted to have Mike on and talk about his graphic design work and such and wrestling and so forth was because I, I figured it was a little bit easier of a sell to get him on and, and not discuss Killswitch shit, which, I mean, yes, I did, obviously. Um, but, I mean, a lot of his graphic design work is wrapped up in the band. So, ergo, we end up talking about Killswitch and the wrestling correlation and i just kind of wanted to know as someone who's into behind the scenes shit just what it was like working with wwe being a fan of wrestling and himself and i honestly didn't expect him to go down the road of what he said and the crazy thing is is i didn't think too much of it having having this be my first story that kind of went viral we'll say I felt a little bittersweet with it because while I was stoked at the attention the episode was getting, and it is now my, as far as actual podcast listens, it is the most listened to episode I've done. Uh, It's at a little over almost 400 listens. It beat out the episode I did with Frank Finelli. And it's crazy to see a lot of the comments on the various social network sites that picked up on it, of people not giving... basically saying they don't give a shit because wrestling's fake and, and all that kind of stuff, which, I mean, by today's standards, aren't movies fake? Aren't comic books fake? Isn't everything fake that basically is any form of entertainment? So why people decide to shit all over wrestling is still beyond me. I don't fucking get it. Um, and I still also don't really understand why people comment on something they don't like. Like, if you don't like it, just don't fucking look at it or don't comment on it. It's not for you. So why why be shitty on something that other people do find enjoyment out of? Also, I, I wasn't sure if I got Mike in trouble. Um, I think that's been my biggest regret about this going as big as it did. Is And I haven't reached out to Mike yet. I, I still feel very awkward about reaching out to Mike and, and kind of saying sorry. I don't know if if I should. I also don't know if it fixes anything in, in a world of whatever fixing can be done at this point. Once the information got out and the story got ran, there's not really anything that I could do to take that back. So I had been wrestling with that for a couple of days and just kind of trying to figure out, like, did I do something wrong? And while most people who end up with something making news sites and shit like that, they probably don't feel 
bad, like they did something wrong or like they're, they're a, a bad person. And that's what I struggled with most of this week is just kind of figuring out did I do something wrong or did I take advantage of a of a situation and I don't I don't think I did I didn't intentionally but I guess with this podcast something you know I've always been super appreciative of anybody that's ever come on and I don't want to do this and I don't want to have people on and make them feel like all I'm doing is trying to bait them into some clickbait headline because it's not what I'm doing and that's not who I am. I mean, my booking company that I started many years ago was called With Heart Booking. And the reason I called it that was because I wanted to book bands that I was passionate about, I would, music I'm passionate about. I wanted to help put my finger, put my stamp on the local music scene and, and help it be what it used to be when I got into our local music scene. And I, I think anything you do that's a creative endeavor, if you don't do it with passion and honesty, I think will always be a failure in some level. And so with that being said, it just was really bittersweet that something I did that kind of came from a, a rather pure place of just wanting to, to be appreciative of somebody giving me their time and talking about something I know that they're interested in and that I'm interested in you know, ends up catching and spreading like wildfire. And some of the pull quotes from it as like the leading headline wasn't the greatest as far as things that Mike said. And maybe that's on me. Maybe I should have had the foresight to actually edit it out as a whole, or at least some of the more damning parts of that pull quote, because knowing that that can be pulled and just out of context like anything is, it just looks really shitty. But I didn't. And I don't know if it's because people don't really listen to this thing that I just didn't assume anyone was going to find it. Uh, I don't know if it was due to the fact that, you know, I've had other people say some pretty interesting shit and no one's picked up on it. So I don't know if it's just due to lack of exposure on my end that kind of prevented me from having the foresight to take something out or you know, I did ask Mike before we started running, is there anything you don't want me to put in there? And, you know, I thanked him for doing it, doing the episode once he was on his way. And we had texted a little bit the next day after his uh, thing at the Nightmare Before Christmas uh, symphony thing. But I haven't texted him since. And I, and maybe when I'm done recording this, I'll, I'll reach out to him and just apologize for any trouble I may have gotten him into. Uh, I just kind of assumed since I had seen a lot of this information floating around on various sites already that it, it wasn't a big deal, uh, that everyone kind of knew what was going on without officially being said, but uh, maybe that's where I just need to learn to have a little more tact uh, with this and with the information people give me when they when they have when they're on this podcast. So that's that's what I wanted to say on last week's episode. Um, I know that's probably really long-winded and no one probably gives two shits, um, but if anyone's listening, uh, maybe even Mike um, himself, which I, I doubt, but I just want to say I'm sorry if you got into any any problems or had any problems arise from you talking with me. I uh, definitely was not my intention, and you know I just I <laughs> hate thinking that someone gets in trouble for something that you know, trying to be nice to somebody, a little guy, basically. Um, so without further ado, this is my conversation with Justin Holman of the band Revis. 
let's uh, let's get into the actual interview podcast itself. Cool. So I have the distinct pleasure at this point of talking with Justin Holman of the band Revis, uh, a band that I grew to really love in high school. And I think uh, anyone who will listen to this is probably around the same age as I am in my almost mid-30s at this point. Uh, so first of all, I want to say thank you for taking the time to, to do this. Uh, I don't know if you get many inquiries to do any of this stuff or talk about something that hasn't really been a thing for a very long time, uh, but I am I was really stoked when you uh, finally answered. Uh, and I got to say, it took me a little while to find you as well. So, oh, did it? Yeah. <laughs> hey, thanks for having me. I, I'm I'm really glad um, that you that you tracked me down and that I I eventually answered you back. Like I said <laughs> earlier, I I try not to be a flake. And you know what? I always think about it this way: that um, it seems like every time somebody's trying to get a hold of me, it's around the same time I'm trying to get a hold of someone else, and they can't and they won't give me an answer. And so I start to feel guilty, and I was like, oh, I better call. I better call John and let him know that I'm interested. Yeah. No, thank you very much. Um, so let's start where it where everything starts. The very beginning, your background, uh, what got you into music, uh, just kind of the formative years before maybe getting into the the heavier meat and potatoes of Revis itself. Sure. Um, uh, well, you know, I I always enjoyed singing. I'd I'd say that I started enjoying singing whenever I was in uh, seventh grade, eighth grade. Uh, I I had I was I had someone tell me that I had a good voice then. Um, just this girl I went to school with. Um, her name was her name was Talia. She said, Justin, you have a really good voice. And I thought, oh, that's cool. I didn't think anything of it, but I thought that was really nice. And I loved music. I had a passion for music, but I didn't really actually have any confidence or do anything with music until probably uh, I was a senior. I was about 17. Uh, so I went through high school, and my focus really was on visual arts. I, I, um, I, I'm blessed to be a really gifted visual artist. I can draw, I can paint and ink. Um, but I started to get into music and had some buddies that were in a band uh, when I was in high school, and I really, I really wanted to do something like that. I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed music a lot. I knew that I could sing, but I never had had that a band experience. Um, I, I grew up in a really small town, so the fact that there even was a band was actually a really cool <laughs> thing because it's really small. You know, it's Southern Illinois, and the town's like six thousand people. But I, I remember they had a band, and, and I remember thinking to myself, I could do that. I could be the singer of a band. I love music enough that I could do that. And so, actually, that band that was in that was around whenever I was um, in high school, going into the first year of college, um, broke up. And the singer of that band was actually Nathaniel, the songwriter for Revis and backup singer and backup um, guitar player, rhythm guitar player. And he and I, along with... Um, someone that I was working at a golf course with, Robert <laughs> Davis. Um, Robert, myself, and Nathaniel started playing together. Um, after work, we'd meet at my house in my parents' living room, and we'd um, learn covers and start writing. We started writing. It's funny because we, we started learning covers, but we started writing original music immediately. That's just like we wanted to write. We wanted to be a band. Um, and so that was around 1998 going into 99. Um, and we started to uh, develop the, the band Revis, which was called Orco then, from mm -hmm. that point. And from there, it just kind of, we just 
we had we, we we were really really blessed to be honest because when we first started robert's grandmother owned a music store so she had we had like we literally had everything at our disposal um to guitars amps um Vocal we PA. would go yeah i mean we had a full pa and we had and in the back of the music store was an actual stage like like a demo stage mm-hmm. and that's where we practice i mean like we literally um we were spoiled yeah um but we took advantage of it too. So I mean, you know, it's one thing to be spoiled. You know, a lot of people get everything they want, but they're not good at it. But we worked really hard. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. We worked really hard, and and we practiced probably two or three times a week. Um, as uh, you know, we were working, we were living, and doing that too. Um, that was probably between '98 and 2000, and then Orco, which what turned into Revis, started getting bigger and bigger locally. Um, and I don't know how much detail you want, but that's usually, that's around the time when we moved to Los Angeles from Southern Illinois. What, uh, I mean, with me living here in Michigan, so not very far from where you were, um, sure. what was the scene like at, uh, back then? Cause I mean, in the, in the late nineties, I mean, it's, it's interesting to think of music back then. Cause you, you kind of were sort of, obviously like the grunge scene was kind of almost over at that point. Mm-hmm, yeah. But the... Emphasis on new metal wasn't quite around yet. It was kind no, of starting to come, and then metalcore, like the stuff like Killswitch Engage and stuff, was sort of starting to happen, but further out east. So it's like all the music that would start to kind of permeate into the mainstream wasn't happening yet. So you guys are in this really interesting, like epicenter of like everything that was about to happen before it did, and and especially here in the Midwest. So what was the scene kind of like as you were coming through and like what were some of your your influences and contemporaries as you were coming up? Well, when we first started, I mean, first of all, for all of us, it was a lot different. I mean, for Robert, um, the lead guitar player, he was completely and totally um, raised on classic rock. Um, And you can see you can see and hear the influences in in jazz, uh, blues. You can see and hear the influences in his guitar playing, which is very impressive. I mean, the guy's the guy is complete rock star. He's amazing. Um, but but I mean, I think that around that time it was still you know we were we were heavily influenced by radio because we didn't have anything else. I mean, there was a cornfield and a radio, so whatever the labels were pumping through is what we were listening to. I mean, we tried. The internet wasn't really no <laughs> um, giving us anything. In, you know what I mean? So yeah. it's not like we had Spotify. Um, so that we could listen to a bunch of indie stuff. So we were we were being fed, we were being corn fed. Unfortunately, <laughs> I mean, let's be legitimate about yeah. it. We were being fed what the label, what the what the radios were being fed by the label. So I mean, with that being said, obviously when we first started, there was heavy influence from bands like Creed. There were heavy influences from Three Doors Down, who was a who was a baby band just started. Um, but we were we were covering you know Three Doors Down. We were now. At the same time, we loved Seven Dust. We loved, um, I mean, like we we were we were into um, everything that came out of the uh, late '80s and early '90s that wasn't grunge as well. So that also had influence. I mean, we loved uh, Soundgarden. Who, who, I mean, who we we were the grunge the grunge scene did completely and totally kind of give us uh, an. an endoskeleton of what to build over re- what revis is going to build over right uh, pearl jam and stuff like that but it wasn't a complete influence because because like i said robert was influenced uh, a lot by um classic rock 
Um, when I say that, I mean like um, Stones, Led Zeppelin. Um, I know that he loved he loved um, um, like uh, Steely Dan and stuff like that. Um, stuff that his mom and dad introduced him to, and also uh, the Beatles. Nathaniel was a huge Beatles fan. Um, so I mean, like there was a bunch. It's always a bunch of stuff. Um, but for but I guess it, it's kind of a hard thing to. Um, to really kind of put a, a pin in because it, it's it's so many things from so many different um, people in the band, you know, coming together and making it. So, I mean, like, we had the radio feed and the stuff, and we also had our own personal favorite things that we liked. I always liked a little heavier, a little bit of the heavier stuff and probably a little bit of the cheesier stuff. <laughs> um, so I was always thankful to have uh, Robert and Nathaniel, um, Robert and Nathaniel's, uh, uh, uh their opinion on where I wanted to go with like certain uh, melodies and stuff or, or, you know, but, but I mean, for the most part, we, it just came from everywhere. It's, it was, it's kind of interesting. Cause I think that's what the other reason that I really love the record that eventually came out places for breathing is just that it, it has a lot of different styles, but it's not rooted in any one thing. So therefore as a result, it really sounds it does. It's not tied to any one one era. Like so, it, it I think it, it can translate over the decades and, and still sound relevant. Uh, but again, I'll, I'll get to that in <laughs> pretty soon. Um, so you guys ended up moving out to LA, and, and a lot of times I think back then a lot of bands you would see like you know bands like Emory who were out in like the south the south the southern states like I think North Carolina or whatever, and then they moved out to Seattle because that was where like the bands that they were interested in were kind of getting found. How scary was it to kind of go all in and be like, all right, we're, we're going to pick up and, and move out West. It was, it was scary. Um, it was scary because for me personally, it was scary because I'm a big homebody. I mean, I, I'm a country boy and I, and I didn't really know what it was going to be like to be away from the family. Um, and, but, but it was also really exciting because I did have my best friends going out to Los Angeles with me. And I knew that, um, They'd have my back. I'd have their back. And as long as we were together out there, if we were all starving, we'd be starving together. If we were all flourishing, we'd be flourishing together. And so we were we believed in ourselves enough to get out there and just give it a shot. You know, we knew that it'd be hard, though. It's it's always just interesting because I'm always uh, being here in the in the Midwest myself. It's like I said, it's uh, it's very interesting to think of people especially back then like where like you said you don't have the internet so it's not like you can just hit up all your friends or you yeah. know look up things and then just be like all right well i mean this has got a great yelp review and and everyone seems great <laughs> out here like that didn't exist so it's like the fact that you're like all right i, I hope this works yeah <laughs> so exactly. uh when i kind of read that it's like man that you know back then that's it was a, i feel like it was a lot bigger of a deal a lot bigger of a gamble than it would be to do it now um especially with you know being still pretty young. I mean, for you guys, like you guys, like you said, you were in the big first couple of years of college. So you're in your like late teens, early twenties at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, how long did it take upon getting out to, to LA to, to kind of get the label attention and, and kind of start making a name for your, yourselves out there? Well, it was so long ago. So you're going to have to, you're going to have to uh, forgive me if I'm off on dates a little bit, but I remember that when I moved out there, I was already 21. So, uh, so I have a feeling that let's let's see. I, I, I believe that from the time that we moved out there to the time that we got label attention was about 
seven to nine months. Yeah. And I mean, and, and let's be completely honest. That's that's weird. Yes. That that's freakishly weird. I I account it to the good Lord, but many people would just be like, "You got a good hand dealt to me." Now, when we moved out there, we already had someone in the industry that not in the industry, but someone that was recording out there that could at least kind of guide us into like he was our Nintendo power. We, he helped, he, you know, you know what I mean. Like yeah. he helped us actually have a little bit of an idea of what avenue to go to. I mean, playing shows. When you go out to LA, a lot of people are like, "Well, you just need to go out there and you need to be found, right?" Um, and so we we're like, "We got to start playing shows. We got to get out to Los Angeles and play the whiskey, um, you know, and and play and play the Viper Room and all these places." It means nothing. It, it literally, <laughs> I mean, like it means nothing to play those shows, even. Um, or, or to you know to, to get shows in LA unless you have something good for people to hear um, so really at that moment the best thing that happened to us when we moved out to Los Angeles was that we found our manager John Zagata because he put us in contact with Tommy Henriksen who recorded our first demo now, Tommy Henriksen is a guitar player for um, um, Alice Cooper, um, and he's also plays with um, Hollywood Vampires. Okay. Now he's really he he knew what he was doing. He knew, hey, Justin's got a good voice. Robert's got a good guitar. Um, good, he's a great guitar player. Nathaniel is an amazing um, songwriter and lyricist. I've got something I can work with here, right? Um, and so, and I'm not not that I'm saying anything bad about the, um, Bob or Mark either. I mean, they were both they were both stand up too. But like you know, he knew that he had things to work with, and so he helped us. Um, really put the sound of Revis together, or, or at least kind of put together the structure of the of what the songs could be like for Revis. And when we found him, which was about four months in, five months in, um, we were probably on the verge of, of leaving. Um, but the demos that he the demos that he did sounded so good that we started getting we we got one label interested in this, and then maybe um, a month in, we had like seven or eight. That wanted to sign Revis, so it so it, it it was it it was very hard for like four or five months, and then and we were like broke, sleeping in our. Um, uh, it was actually around 9/11. Um, actually, it was it was very close to 9/11 because the day that 9/11 because on 9/11 we had gotten kicked out of our apartment and we were sleeping in our um, in our practice pad. And I remember waking up to someone saying, "Hey, um, you need you guys need to." to you know wake up and see what's going on um but around that time was around the time when we started getting stuff put together for Revis. so in you guys and i'm blanking on exactly who put out the record off the top of my head because i focus more on the the actual <laughs> record stuff so i forget sure. who, i forget exactly who you signed with i want to say i thought it was like epic or something like that like one it's, of the... it's epic yeah okay. we were under me which is epic Okay. As I say, I remember it being one of the, the major, major labels at that point, not like one of the mini majors that like right. the, the subsidiaries and such that has become what the music industry is now. Uh, sure. So something I had kind of, I've read along the, the many years of research uh, that I've had at this point, something I had read that before going into actually recording Places for Breathing was that you guys demoed everything as acoustic songs. Um, no, I <laughs> thank you, internet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 
Thank you. Well, now, now let me just say this. I may be I may be forgetting too. A lot. Let me just put it to you this way. Maybe what you're what you're referring to is the fact that a lot of Revis's songs have a undertone of acoustic strumming. Mm -hmm. So like whenever we first started writing and, and, and Robert's style and Nathaniel's style of writing um, different stuff, um, a lot of the un, a lot of the um, underlying gu guitars are heavily acoustic so so basically what i think you're referring to which is something i think that robert said in the past and something that you know revis has said in the past is that um all of our songs are written acoustically and so therefore they are naturally or all of the songs for places for breathing i should say naturally they can be um trans um they can be played acoustically um very easily because that's the origin of them anyways before okay. they're is anything put on them. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it totally does. I just had always, it's one thing, and, and like you're saying, it's one thing when, when you're finding stuff and it says like, oh, we demo stuff acoustically because like there's a band uh, from Sweden, Blindside, and their guitar, yeah, Blindside. yeah, their guitar player always used to say like, I write everything on an acoustic guitar because if it sounds heavy on an acoustic guitar, it's definitely going to be heavy when I play it through a distortion pedal. So that, that's the same, that's the same idea for Revis. Okay. So, and that's kind of more in line with what I figured was that like, maybe like the beginning starts there and then it's like, okay, like now let's switch that over to, you know, a full band and, and plugged in. But I was going to say, given that, was there ever, I mean, cause you obviously did some songs acoustically or mostly acoustic that ended up on that record. And as you said, there's, there's little nuances in the background. If you're really listening, you can, you can hear them, uh, in the mix because it's a really well mixed record. Um, but with that being said, was there ever talks of maybe doing like an acoustic tour or like an acoustic like EP of like some songs, just like B-sides or whatever to, to put out? Well, you know, it's funny that you say that. We recorded Caught in the Rain acoustically. Do you know if that exists or not? Uh, I think it exists on like YouTube somewhere. But as far okay. as like, be, like actually, and I'm sure it's because of your, the, the rights to the music and all that, but your music's at least not on Apple Music as of now. I don't know if it's on Spotify. Yeah. I don't really use Spotify yeah. anymore. Epic. Um, Sony kind of um, locked it up. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what's going on there, to be honest with you. I'll be completely honest. I don't know what's going on with that. Um, the only song that was recorded acoustically was A Caught in the Rain. Um, and it was we recorded that in, um, I want to say, uh, it makes me wish I had one of the other guys here. I, I want to say that um, that we recorded it in um it wasn't nashville um what's the other city in tennessee that's what that's memphis? west memphis so i think that i think that we recorded caught in the rain acoustically in memphis okay um but we we did that because we were having to do so many acoustic radio uh, things radio things that if there was ever a possibility that we needed to pre-record we'd have it just for um, live situations and such, so that you could just pull the guitars out and me sing over. Does that make sense? Like yeah. a, that it would like a backing yeah, that, track. Exactly. Um, but but regarding any of the other songs, we never planned on on recording them. It would have been awesome, um, but we never took time to do that. Um, that I can think of. We may have done uh, may have done another song, but I'm pretty sure that could, because really. Doing seven acoustically would almost be, um, it would almost be 
uh, mund- mundane or boring because because it's almost already acoustic sounding anyways in the yeah. beginning. Um, besides the heavy guitars coming in at the end, but um, that would have been really cool. But no, we didn't talk about the any acoustic tour whatsoever. But mostly because we were so um, busy with doing you know with with the larger scale tours when we were with Evanescence and such. So we had to, you know, you have to have that big sound in the arenas and stuff like that. Yeah. I always thought Walls would have been a, a good, interesting one to hear, like, fully acoustic, given the fact that that's kind of how it starts off anyway. I agree completely. I love that song. Plus, I think there's room for a lot of different vocal ideas and, and melodies and such in an acoustic realm. Like, instead of having the higher guitars and louder... You can kind of go more softer and do more, I think, interesting things. I've always thought. Yeah, you can you can slow it down and kind of give it an, um, a, a different um, a different life. Yeah, yeah. So, places for breathing. We're gonna we're gonna just kind of get right into it. Um, I it's when I heard "Caught in the Rain," the thing that always kind of as a first single and the first thing that you know most of us are gonna hear because I mean a lot of people aren't gonna have been able to have seen you locally like uh whether it be from here in the midwest or even out out west in la is just how sonically good it is like everything like there's nothing nothing fighting for space like the drums come in they're really punchy and then kind of there's a nice build and there's room for the guitars and everything to go and then you know it kind of all fades back to to showcase your your voice and your lyrics and all that kind of stuff and i've always thought like the album's just so well produced and arranged like it's it's i would say interestingly enough i think the only record i can think of that's a debut that just is so strong out the gate and just is 100 like just so good is panic at the disco's uh a fever you can't sweat out like that's just a great pop record like there's just so much going on and i've always said it's probably one of the best like pop debuts or debut records like of probably the last 10 15 years uh and i still stand by that like i just bought it on vinyl and i'm always still like man there's just little nuances to this record that keep bringing you back and very much the same thing with places for breathing there's always like little things that i catch upon every listen and i'm always like man this record's just so well done so i kind of wanted to know a little bit more about the recording process like you guys recorded at nrg studios which is arguably one of the more famous studios like around you got to produce it with Don Gilmore, who I think at that point was just coming off of Meteora and or Hybrid Theory with Linkin Park and a handful of other bands. Uh, yeah. And yeah. So and and I'm just gonna kind of like say these things just to kind of throw the just you know the name dropping right away because I'll ask questions about all of it. You have Andy. <laughs> you have Andy Wallace mixing it. And even more amazing, because at that point, I think you guys were just getting ready to get your new drummer, but you had Josh Fries, who was, at that point in 2002, had played with, or played on, I should say, the Good Charlotte, Young and the Restless record, uh, had done Seether's first record, had done, uh, I think he had done a punk record I'm blanking on. He basically was on any record that was huge in 2000 to 2002, the Perfect Circle, like he was on everything. Uh, and I don't think a lot of people know that he probably was on that record, uh, which upon finding that I was like, well, of course he is. And of course this is why these drums sound so great. Cause it, (laughs) how could it not? But going into your first debut record for a, for a label and working with, with all these names, what was it like kind of getting ready for, for it? And was, 
were the songs already done and ready to go or was there a lot of fine tuning with Don and, and building these songs and making them what they ultimately would become? They were, they were really close to where they already were. Um, and, and, and this is, um, and I'll, and I'll just do it. The name drop again, the, the, um, Tommy, Tommy Henriksen, like I said, he's the one that did the demo for us that got us signed. He had, he had really been, was really instrumental in helping us find our sound and, and arrange the songs in a way that they could be presented to a major label and to a major producer. Um, the, the, um, I, I, I was blown away by seeing what Tommy did with, with our ideas and how he nurtured us and helped us kind of um, do a more original and a more um, natural, uh, a more natural sound for us as Revis. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of blanking on where we're going with this, but like, but it went from there to those demos catching the attention of the record labels. Mm-hmm. And I remember, and I'm just going to go on a side note here. I remember when we got, when we were, when we were doing showcases for different labels, we did a showcase for uh, DreamWorks. We did a showcase for Maverick. We did a showcase for Columbia Epic um, and a couple other, but I remember when we were set up to do those, we also showcased for Don because someone had said to Don um, or, Don's lawyer was our lawyer, and so, which, that was nice, and he came and listened to us, and he was like, it's good, let's do it, and so, first of all, so we had Don in our pocket before we signed with anyone, which, I don't know if you're aware of, but having a having Don, who just sold five million records with Hybrid Theory, Basically, you can get any record deal that you want because you want to. You want any anything that he's decided to do. You want him doing. So we had that as, and that was a huge help. But when we went into the, uh, before we went into the studio, we did pre um, pre pro. We, we, we did some pre writing and stuff um, on a on a separate before we started wasting time in the studio. And we just went through the songs that Tommy had arranged with us, and Don added. Um, it's really cool. It's really neat because he's he's so talented, and 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 a lot of people would be like, "Well, he just sounds the same." Well, just like any other artist, he, or just like any, just like an artist, a producer is an artist, so they have their sound. I mean, if you if you watch, um, if if you watch if you watch a producer, um, a director, anybody, all their stuff's gonna look a lot the same because they have their their way of doing it. Right. And when he touched Revis's music. I started to hear things in Revis's music that was similar to Hybrid Theory, that was similar to all, all these bands that he had um, worked on, and I loved it because I realized, oh, this guy, this guy can like really make us shine. He can really polish us up. Mm-hmm. And so he did make some changes before we went into the studio. Nothing huge by any means, but some really small, subtle stuff that made a huge difference in the sound of Places for Breathing. With a uh... The interesting thing, like something I've kind of wondered too is, and we'll kind of touch on this after the Revis stuff too, but the lyrics to you, you, you talked about how uh, you didn't, you had co- like people, everyone kind of in the band kind of helped write everything and arrange. And so I kind of had wondered, was 
because I, I tend to find now in, in dealing with like having a lot of friends bands or a lot of friends in bands and so forth that sort of a dirty word that a lot of people don't like to admit as a vocalist is that you know they're not always the one writing the lyrics um always and what's been interesting is like i tend to find like some of the bigger bands like readily admit that the, the singer the front man isn't necessarily the one writing all the words that everyone thinks he is like case in point like you know seven dust you know you have three vocalists two songwriters themselves like lyricists between clint and uh morgan and lejean a lot of times isn't the one who wrote the songs that everyone's like man i love lejean because he wrote this song it's like no he didn't actually like it was you know clint or morgan or you know so on yeah. and so forth or you know there's more examples of that over the course of you know history of music and so i think it's interesting i feel like i i can kind of pick which songs are, are yours that you wrote all the way through ly lyrically compared to some of the others just kind of due to the lyrical themes that kind of seem to, to kind of float between them but how was it trying to sing some of these songs uh, with Don, like, was there a lot of experimenting with with your voice and, and kind of trying to find different ways to sing to to make it be the best that it could, or, or like was again like with pre pro and stuff like that, where the songs pretty much as they were, you didn't really need to do a whole lot, and you're able just to kind of bang it out. Well, I'll drop a bomb on you. Um, <laughs> I I I I probably I would have to say that I contributed absolutely nothing to the lyrics of Places for Breathing. Nathaniel, Nathaniel and Don, um, once we were signed, I mean, like it, it was, it was really, obviously if there was something that wasn't working, if words weren't working that I was recording, you know, that, that Nathaniel or that Don had, uh, had already, had already talked about, um, then I would say, Hey, what about this word or what about that? But Nathaniel from the beginning of the band basically wrote the lyrics i wanted him to he was a poet and and i uh, and i liked the stuff that he wrote i wrote stuff i wrote my own stuff but we um but when revis got signed it really took um it really became a robert and nathaniel guitar thing and um nathaniel nathaniel and tommy or nathaniel and don um doing the final lyrics because he's just a gifted lyricist i mean like he would come up with things that um, I would love, and so it really never bothered me. And it and and it's good, and it's good that I that people can know and that he can have the credit because that's one thing Nathaniel um, deserves is that he is an incredible lyricist and incredible songwriter, and so is Robert. Um, but for the most part, I'd say ninety nine percent of ninety nine to ninety five percent of Places for Breathing's lyrics were written by Nathaniel with help from Robert, myself, and Don. But for the most part, um, it it was it was Nathaniel. Um, and, and only the only times when they'd get changed, um, was when something just wouldn't sound right or, or my voice just wouldn't complement it. Right. I will say this though, when Nathaniel was writing for places for breathing, um, or when we came in with what we had done with Tommy, um, Don had Nathaniel give him the lyrics, write them all down. And he did the same thing that he did with the guys from Lincoln park. He said, Nathaniel down at a Mac at a computer and said, I don't like this line. 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 And just had him write all day long. So when, while I was, while, while Robert was doing guitars, while we were tracking other things, Nathaniel was at the studio and he was just in front of a computer, a poor guy, just like 
pouring out his heart trying to come up with these lyrics, you know? And I mean, like, it's not that the lyrics that he had before weren't good, but Don was like, we need, we're seeking excellence and right. we need to, you know, we're seeking excellence. And so he pushed Nathaniel and what, what Nathaniel ended up um, coming out with was wonderful. And Don helped him a lot. You know, I'm not saying that Don wrote it cause I don't know that was between those two, but um, I know that Don was by his side a lot, kind of directing him. Hey, why don't you go, why don't you go this way with the song or why don't you go this way? Um, and even as small as, you know, just tiny little words here and there or, or how or how they would be uh, presented in a, in a verse that happened. And but that's what a producer's for. I mean, that's why you're working with somebody like Don was is for him to say, hey, this is what people are wanting to hear. This is or this is what I want to hear from Revis, you know, from the band. And so he guided him and, and all of us a lot in that way. He was tremendous. He was tremendous to work with. I, I had always wondered if, if with working with the pedigree of everyone that kind of had their hands on the record, if it if it added pressure for you guys outside of what there already is for, for putting out a record, your first record with a label where everything's kind of the first everything. Like, okay, this is our first record with this label. This is the first time of us going to a big fancy studio, working with a, a big name producer. Like, when you have the pedigree of, of like I said, everything, like between, you know, and I don't know if having Andy mixing it, if that was predetermined or if that was something like, hey, we handed this record in, and then they're like, hey, here's your list of producers that we can give you for this record, and then you choose from that. Uh, but did it make it a little more nerve-wracking to know that, like, okay, this thing's kind of coming together, we got some really great songs, and, oh, man, but, like, Don's going to bat for us, like, we got, like, you know, there's a lot of expectations, or was it just kind of very all-exciting and and new because it, it is, but I always, I always wonder what, what it's like to be in your boat with all of this stuff. Cause like, like I said, like to me, I, one of the greatest things I think about being around people who are in bands and writing music is always like when, when stuff starts taking shape and it's almost done or like you're getting your final mixes and you're getting really excited. Like, Oh my God, like listen to this song. Like this is so great. And you're so happy for it. And like just all the hard work that went into it. But then knowing you still have, maybe depending on the promotional plan, like five, six, seven months before anyone's going to hear any of this. So you're just like, right. Okay. Right. Uh, and then like in that time, that's when all the second guessing can happen where you're like, is this good? I don't know. We already, it's already mastered. They've already started printing the CDs. Like nothing can change. I don't know. Did I, did I mess up? Like, is this as good as I think it is? Or is it terrible? Like, so I kind of had wondered going into your first record release with all the people that are associated with it, was it just fun times always or was there a lot of extra pressure you guys put on yourself due to just you know everyone kind of going to bat for you for this first record i mean there there was always pressure i i mean i think the i think the hardest thing with with getting with with us getting signed was that we were so young i i, I didn't know what i was doing i we we were so young and we were foolish you know i mean <laughs> we we were very young i mean the oldest was was um the oldest was mid 20s but I mean, we we were excited the entire time, and we were on cloud nine the entire time. The first time, the first moment that I knew we had something really special was after we we had finished the album, or we had finished the production of the album, <laughs> and we and we had and and I flew along with Robert and Nathaniel and our manager to New York for Andy to be with Andy as he mixed um, 
because Andy only mixed two of our songs. Oh, okay. He mixed Caught in the Rain and Seven. Um, we had uh, Alan Mulder, another amazing uh, talent, mix the rest of it. But um, I remember when we came back and we got in the car at the airport in L.A. and we were headed back to our apartment, we put caught in the rain in and i heard the mix in a car just on on the stereo of a normal car and i remember saying thinking to myself i can't believe that i'm a part of what this sounds like because this sounds like what i listened to when i was 18 working with these guys and i wanted to do this that's when it really hit me this is a big deal everything the stars have aligned all the people that are working on this are very good at what they do, and you are a part of it. That's when I that 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 was a pretty um, almost all all moment, you know, where I was just like, oh, I don't know. I I I, I actually at that moment I was a little intimidated. <laughs> it would seem like at that point there's a lot of expectation getting ready yeah. to roll out because sure I it's interesting to me have like I said between I mean like I. I book shows not so much anymore with doing this because there's just so little time to do everything when you are doing something creative. Yeah. But it's interesting to me, like, there are times, like, I'm already, I'm still getting offered shows for, like, April of next year. And I don't think people realize, like, how far in advance things are happening. Like, you could be getting, like, a record that you're waiting for is, or, or a band could just put out a record and it's doing good but people are already like okay like here's your touring cycle here's hopefully the next two years if the album does well here's your first like we're gonna pick a first single probably gonna have you shoot a video for it because that's gonna be our lead off promotional single uh maybe if the album does well we're gonna push this as your second single we'll look to push that out around this time like there's so much that happens before everything even gets to the general public that i don't think people yeah. are, are aware of and so to me, it's it's interesting to, to kind of think more back then when it was more, the music industry was more still kind of the old way that it was, uh, very by yeah. the numbers, very how everything was. So it just kind of made me wonder if uh, what the, how that rollout kind of looked like. Now your album's done, it's getting ready to, to come out. Like what were some of the, because obviously you guys shot a video for, for Caught in the Rain. And from what I remember, it played a lot on like, mtv2 and stuff like that like it was getting a lot of airplay and even i think on whatever like the, the pseudo college uh mtv channel was at the time or yeah know, whatever infuse yeah yeah yeah. i remember getting it getting a lot of airplay not so much on the radio itself uh at least not out here and just kind of being like wow this you know that old cliche thing like this band must be huge like making tons of money selling lots of records i see it everywhere i go to to buy and so what what was the reaction like? Was it as popular as it seemed like what it was? was? The, what was that? What was the reality? Yeah, I mean, because like there's there's my perception of of like man, this record's so good, and like the people I would play it for, like this is a great sounding record, and and so on and so forth. But I, in my little bubble, it's like okay, like you guys must have been huge. And and the one of the bigger things, like the two bands I can think of for me at the time that I was like, wow, you're touring with this band and this band, like holy shit, you must be like boatloads of money and all that kind of stuff one was oleander which i 
now in my <laughs> my my wisdom now i realized they were not as big as i thought they were but when they came out with that uh, are you there single i was like oh my god this is like the greatest song i've ever heard right and i still like that song uh sure. but sure. it's one of those things like i quickly realized oleander wasn't as big as i thought they were in any realm and it's nothing it's not a slight on them it's just the reality of the situation like i thought they were bigger than they were uh sure but sure. then and i did too <laughs> <laughs> uh and then you know like evanescence like in my head it's like oh man i'm looking back at it like evanescence is huge because they're getting on all these great tours being the support now fast forward you know over a decade and me booking shows i understand that a lot of opening bands on support bills unless they're like big arena tours probably aren't making a ton still probably aren't uh you're still probably in a van you're still not probably getting great per diems or guarantees at your shows it's more about selling of the merch and getting your name out there and the the cliche like oh it's the exposure you're gonna get it will pay off later and it does um but what was what is the reality Am, am i like way off on the fact that like the album like took off or was it just kind of a nice steady climb as a whole? It was it was a pretty steady climb. It was pretty dead up until we got it on a tour, on a, a bigger tour with Oleander. Um, then we were able to also um, get, jump on uh, some some shows with. Um, well, we, when we did our first round with Evanescence, that really helped us a lot. Um, we also did, did, uh, jumped on one with fuel and that helped us uh, too. The, there was so, there was a flood of alternative rock at that moment. So really we were pretty, we were, we were as much as you would think that we would, were huge. There were just as many other bands that were that huge. Cause I mean, we were competing with Chevelle. We were competing with uh, a bunch of other newer bands that were breaking, um, Breaking Benjamin, um, <laughs> bands like that, bands like that that were really, they were freshman bands as well, and so and so we had, we had them to go up against too regarding airtime, um, radio airtime, and also just finding shows to play. We were poor, man. I mean, like like being we were we were and we were also bad with our money. And 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 to be honest, no one in the band really cared to be a part of management. So like we had a manager, but none of us really had that maturity level yet. To we were like, no, 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 we're gonna do this. We're gonna do it this way. We're going to take care of ourselves. So that was one of the main things that 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 ruined. I mean, like I'll be honest with you, one of the main things that ruined Revis's. Um, first attempt at or or attempt at building a foundation was that we rode on the fact that other people are going to do things for us and we can just show up and really when i look back at it now and i look at and i and i and i've talked to other guys and i really see how they did it um we should have been much more proactive in 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 our branding so but but i mean like we when we when we got on the bigger tour i'd say we really started picking up momentum and having a more comfortable uh, life when is when we were touring with Evanescence and we, we went from um, United States tour over to Europe tour. The Europe tour was really hard because we were still kind of broke, but but <laughs> but the exposure we were getting was really helping us um, sell merch and really helping us get a lot more uh, plays regarding um, any you know anything that was available online was probably getting ripped anyways. 
Um, but we were, but it, it provided us more opportunities to get on TV shows, more opportunities to get songs on movies and, t- and, and, and TV series and stuff like that. But we were pretty much, we were pretty much always poor the whole time. <laughs> it's yeah. funny to think of that you were really at the forefront of pirating records and stuff like that, but you also were sort of at the cusp of or actually you were at the tail end also of like syncs for like movies and video games and stuff like that. Like that doesn't really exist much anymore. Not like it did back then. Uh, at least as like, you don't see the big sound, like, cause I remember collecting soundtracks as weird as that is, but like think of some of the movies and the, and the iconic soundtracks or the songs from the soundtracks, like queen of the damned or the crow, or, you know, even the first like fast and the furious and, and all of these kind of things. Like, songs on in soundtracks were huge and i don't yeah, think that's a were. thing really anymore and i don't know if it's just due to the fact that you know it costs too much money for all the clearances and the rights and all that kind of stuff but you guys were one of those bands that i feel like caught in the rain and, and a few of the others songs that were not necessarily singles but ended up in stuff like it seemed again like it seemed like you were everywhere and just kind of blowing up so it's interesting to hear that even in spite of that that it's like you know the the business side of the music business kind of screws you a little bit i think in the in the grand scheme of things i mean i i never want to put the blame for revis's dysfunction or failure on anyone or anything in particular because it 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 happened for multiple reasons but but i'd say i'd say that there's two main reasons why revis failed one of the main reasons is because of Revis themselves, themselves, and the other reason is because we had, we, there's three. One of the reasons <laughs> is because of Revis. One of the reasons is because there was just too much money going out to too many bands for, under Sony. We just couldn't get enough um, underneath us to really skyrocket the Places for Breathing album. And the third is that the music industry was crumbling, all of it. All of it was because of the internet. Things were changing, and we were at that point where, if you were already established, you could probably keep floating. But if you weren't, you either needed to get picked back up by somebody and have somebody else put more money underneath you, or you were going to sink. Um, uh, in the label that you were at, if you were a small dog, which is what we were. I mean, we were we. There were a lot of rock bands in the roster, uh, in Epic's roster, and in Sony's roster. So. There, there's a few reasons, but for the most part, you know, there was a merger and stuff like that. And and, but I'm getting I'm getting off track. But basically, I mean, like, there's, we we, we didn't have much, to, um, much foundation monetarily. Mm-hmm. So you know, that's just what happened. I always wondered. I mean, you guys got to tour with Pearl Jam, which I mean, it, and Pearl Jam has always been at just. the next level as far as being a live band and touring and so forth and even back then still probably at the riding the high still because the the first couple records weren't as far removed as like say if they were to tour now and you know you got like 10 records under their belt what was touring with pro jam like and and did any of the guys in the band like kind of give you any advice uh while out on the road or was it just kind of like "Eh, they're there and we're here and you show up and play and that's it yeah, I mean, like, uh, we did we did play some shows with Pearl Jam. I didn't ever speak to one person in Pearl Jam. 
Now, David, our drummer, spoke with Matt a little bit, um, and I think that maybe my bass player spoke with a couple of them, but for the most part, they didn't speak to us. And I think that the main reason we got even got on that tour was because they were um, bothered or bugged into letting this freshman band tour with them because they were with Sony. And so there was a parent company. It's basically a parent telling the older brother to tell the younger <laughs> brother to let the younger brother go to the skating rink with them or they're not going to be able to go out this weekend, you know? Right. Um, and so that's basically what happened. I didn't ever talk to Eddie. I didn't ever talk to anybody. Um, I would have loved to. I was a huge fan. It wasn't an ego thing at all. I probably would have been really even more nervous. But um, <laughs> we never. I never met any of them or talked to them. So that's how uncool that story is. <laughs> it's it's one of those, in, in listening to a lot of different podcasts, uh, something that some of these bands that have been around for a long time they talk about is, is the cosine of a younger band, you know, kind of doing something to kind of show, like, we like this band, we're taking them out with us. And it always kind of seems like, especially back around then, that... Pearl Jam always took out like kind of the, the young upstart band that was, you know, kind of doing pretty good and was sort of in the same vein as them, but offered a little something different, kind of would bring in a younger audience maybe that was like me, like where it's like, I like Pearl Jam. Oh, but Revis is opening. Oh, well, now I really want to go. And right. so they're, they're getting the money off of the opening band, which is, you know, another trick, you know, that some of the older bands do. You kind of bring the young band in, you get their fans, and then it kind of sure. like the money goes to you and a little bit goes to the band that, you know, brought all these people in. So I wasn't sure if it was a thing like where, you know, like someone in the band was like, man, you know, we got your record from the label ahead of time and we've really been cranking it like on this tour. And so we're really glad to have you out and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Or, or if it's very much like you said, where it's like, no, none of us really talked to anyone and we'd show yeah. up, we'd play, then we'd get done and, and we'd probably either start driving or whatever and watch them. And that was it. Yeah, I mean, it was it, it was it was that case with other bands, but not with Pearl Jam. I could I think that they probably could have cared less, to be honest. But that's OK, too, completely. You know what I mean? Like I look at it, you know, looking at it with legitimately looking at it realistically, um, I wouldn't have expected that from them. You know what I mean? So um, it wasn't a big deal. It's not like we were hurt by any means. So from what I remember, pretty much right after that tour is it seemed like the buzz was that you were about to start writing the next record. And I can't remember if there was even like a, a demo version of something that had kind of leaked in, in whatever f form that looked like back then, like around 2003 or 2004. But it seemed like there was, I think like three or four songs that had kind of made their the rounds on the internet. And then it was like, I was getting excited for a new record. And then it was just like, we're done. And even, even that seemed very abrupt. Like, it was like I went to look, like, on MySpace or something one day, and it was like, yeah, we're done. And I was like, wait, weren't you just recording? Like, what, what's going on with all these songs, and what's going on with everything? Like, how? again, very naive at that point. It's like, how does a, how does a band that's on a major label that just came off a tour with Pearl Jam, like, how do they just break up? Like, it's not like you were hearing in magazines of, like, all infighting or anything like that. Like, it didn't seem like that was happening. So it's a very just seemed very abrupt uh, from my yeah. perspective. And I don't know if it was, like you said a little bit ago, like there were three things kind of leading to the, the beginning of the, the breakup, I guess. But was it really like kind of a, when it happened, like kind of it had been slowly coming to a head and it wasn't until like, you know, you're off the road and things kind of are starting to 
be more instead of like well, I'll deal with that later. Well, now later is here, and I have to deal with it, and and this, these are things that we have to address. And well, I guess we're just gonna kind of dissolve this and, and go our separate ways. Is I guess in short, what happened? Well, okay, so so it was we came off the road in two thousand and three, and I was getting married. So I got married at the end of two thousand and three. Um, in December, and I actually, and the, and I, so I was back here in Illinois, and the other guys were in Los Angeles. The bass player, player Bob, was let go from the band around that time, um, earlier in 2004, while I was still here. Um, I, 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 the, I remember that there was a moment in time when Robert and Nathaniel and David we're all writing songs for the new album, but I was here honeymooning with the new wife and also preparing for my first child. Now, that period of time to the point to where I had uh, my first child um, is kind of foggy. I don't remember exactly what was going on, but I do remember that those guys were out in L.A. and I was spending a lot of time with my pregnant wife. Um in that moment, there was pro- in in those few months that 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 would happen in between there, there was a lo- probably a lot of talk um, on their end of do we need Justin as the singer or can we do this with Nathaniel being the singer or should we get a different singer because Justin seems to be pretty wrapped up with his um, new family, right? Uh, which I totally understand, but. Um, and so there started to be a little bit of dissension in Revis at that moment. Um, they started sending me music that I didn't really care for and um, that they were working on. It seemed to be a little bit more in the vein of uh, Radiohead than it was uh, rock. Mm-hmm. And so um, when, I got, when I got back into L.A. in June, it was around May or June of 2004, um, cause I was flying back and forth here and there, but when I got back, I could tell that there was some serious, um, I don't know if it was anger or just bitterness of, you know, what do you, where have you been, Justin? You know, what's going on? Like, where have you been? This is before we were dropped. And, and so I tried to, I, 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 I felt like I was out of place in the band. I felt like they didn't mind that I felt that I was out of place. But I understand now, looking back at it, that they were just aggravated that I wasn't putting in much time with the band. Um, that's where it really started to kind of fall apart, um, because, and, and I take blame for it, um, for 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 my, you know, my part of it. Uh, I, I do think that when we started recording and writing that second album, we we got hooked up with this guy um, to help us. He was kind of our Tommy Hendrickson of the second album. Um, And um, to be completely honest, his name is, um, I'm having a a blank, drawing a blank right now for his name, Um, Tony something. Anyways, um, the guys were, were, me and the guys were writing with him and kind of putting things together for the second album with him. And, and. I, I didn't like any of it, really, man. I mean, like, I can I can pretty much get into something and not – I was pretty much into it. Like, I was singing things and being like, okay, this is cool. But it wasn't – it didn't have that place for breathing, that, that, that 
that passion with it. Right. And so um, Tony Daniels, no, not Tony Daniels. I don't know his last name. <laughs> Anyways, it doesn't matter because he's not very good, and I, I don't care if he hears that. He's not like it, it wasn't. It wasn't very good. Um, it wasn't very good. Um, and so. And so, like, we recorded that, and I remember our A&R guy hearing it, and I could just see in his face that, like, what are you doing? Like, this is, <laughs> like, like you used to make, you know, like, like you're not doing it right, you know? What's going on? Like, whatever's changed, stop, you know? Um, and I think that a lot of it had to do with influences, musical influences, like wanting to sound like Radiohead, wanting to sound... When, when you get the idea in your head... It's cool to be obs- obscure, mm-hmm. and it and it begins begins to manifest and like turn into its and, and turn into an obsession. You miss the mark completely because because you go from being what is what is naturally the way you sound into trying to sound so weird and obscure that it fails. Right. Does that make sense? No, and totally. I think that, and I think that that's what happened with the second album. Is hey, we want to sound even more different. Um, we do not want to sound like um, like um, the alternative rock anymore. They, the guys desperately did not want to be labeled a alternative rock band or a um, you know this this top forty rock band. They wanted to get more respect, and I think that the more that we st- that they started going down that path, the more obscure we started to sound. And when there was the merger with 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 um, BMG and Sony, um, and the label started cutting bands, and we gave them this album, this second album. They were like, "Nah, it's not working," and we got dropped. And so from there, in my mind, like I said, I'm a homebody, and I really was, you know, I and, and by that time I had we had had my first child. I was like, "I'm done." I, I, there was bitterness in the band, um, and 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 I take full responsibility for being a selfish, um, immature fool. Then, um, but there was bitterness and there was dissension, and it just split. And and I I still loved the guys in the band. I still wanted to write, but I did not want to write the obscure stuff. I wanted to write. I wanted to be a part of what Revis was, of what brought us to Revis, which was we loved rock. I loved to sing loud and and. And high, and and we weren't doing that in that second album that got us that was with us when we got dropped, and so I just moved back to to Illinois, um, and just waited and just hoped, and I even worked with Robert a little bit in that time um, afterwards, but nothing came of it, and it just kind of died. I'm trying to. Because it seemed like you guys were gone for about a year officially. And then, so that would have put it about 2005. And I want to say like 2006, it seemed like, and, and that's, and the interesting thing sort of about like the, this, the tail end of the band is that this is when social media was around. Like when we had MySpace and you had your top eights right. and, and, and it was easy to find bands and kind of sort of keep up with the members who you could find the pages or if, you know, they were more like, Hey, here's my page, like whatever, start following me or let's be friends or however you want to put it. And you know, I remember it, the band wasn't – because at that point, you didn't understand, like, when a band was gone. It's like, well, they still have a, a MySpace page, and, and they have all these listens and, and all these friends and, and blah, 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 blah. That it's like – so 
are, are they gone? Because they have it. Because in my head, it's like if you were to be gone, it's like, well, why not just delete this thing? Because you don't need it anymore. So, like, as a young person who didn't really understand social media when it first came on, it's like, well, I don't understand this. Uh, and like I said, there wasn't a whole lot of press around it. It just kind of seemed like it was done. I think maybe there was like a thing like, hey, you know, like it was, it's been a good ride, and you know, we're just we're not doing it anymore. Sorry, thanks for all the you know years of support. The the cliche like post the release, sure. and then it seemed like. In 2006 or seven, whatever, I think 2006, it seemed like there was like a song that came out. I don't remember if it was a demo or a video or whatever, it's, but it seemed like almost like, hey, we're back. And we're trying to figure out what the band is going to look like at this point. We're not, we don't have a label, but here's, yeah. and so at that point I was like, oh shit, like the band's back. And I think I even remember at that point, because that's when I really was trying to figure out how to book bands. And I, I thought it was just as, as easy as like, hey, I live here in Michigan and, and you don't have a label, but not understanding like there's you might still have a booking agent and all that kind of stuff. And I just remember being like, hey, like, are you guys touring? Like, I would love to bring you through Michigan because I never got a chance to see you. And then I got a thing. I was like, hey, we're not doing anything now. We'll keep you in touch message us later we might be looking to do some shows around this time and then i think i messaged back a few months later and i was like no we're done <laughs> i was like oh <laughs> so well and then you guys around, were gone again yeah that was that was around the time that that robert was with hensley um so so we had we had broken up we were not a, we were not together robert was out in los angeles nathaniel and i were back here i was just I was probably working at like Toys R Us or something, man. <laughs> um, but but I, I Nathaniel and I so 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 Robert was out in Los Angeles. He was playing guitar with Hensley um, and, and maybe a couple other bands. Nathaniel and I had started working on music again. Um, we had written um, Red Letter Day. We had written um, Metrosexual Man, and we had written. Um, uh, Taste in a Flash. Those are three song, three Revis songs that probably no one has ever heard. Maybe a couple of them they've heard, but those are those were the songs that we were like, let's go back out to Los Angeles and let's do this again. And so Nathaniel and I moved out to Los Angeles and we're living with one of our friends, Terry Weigel, um, and we were we were starting to record um, again with Tommy, and. We actually were were there was a little bit of bitterness between um, not bitterness but just oddness between Robert and and myself and and maybe maybe all three of us I don't remember it's always been kind of dramatic and uh, like I said I take I take full responsibility because at that time my ego was through the roof and I was a complete fool <laughs> but we started we started to um, record new songs and that's probably what you're talking about because we did start to put some stuff up on MySpace and we did start to put some stuff up just to try to draw some more attention um, and I remember there I, I remember there beginning to be some animosity between Nathaniel and myself while we were out there um, and I don't know if it had to do with the fact that he wasn't going to be the singer or if it had to do with the fact that, um, I don't know what it was. I, I honestly don't, but we were living together. We had fought a couple times. Um, and I remember we had, things had been bitter and I was, and he had taken me to the airport for me to go home and to see my first wife and my child. And when I, when I got out of the car, he said, Hey man, I guess I'll see you, um, here, here in a little bit when you get back. 
try to lose some weight while you're in Illinois. <laughs> and and I remember, I rem, and I, I mean, obviously it bothered me. I remember the second that he said that, I said to myself, I'm done with him. I'm done with people that tell me that are going to tell me what to do, stuff like that. I shouldn't have taken it so personally. <laughs> but the fact that he was that, that he was worried about my weight instead of worried about us getting just music written, um, that really bothered me. And I didn't want him co- I didn't want him lording over me like that. And it was one of the reasons why we had dissipated in the beginning in 2004 and five. Mm-hmm. And so I remember getting on the plane and saying and saying to myself, I'm not coming back. And I know that that sounds really bitter and really small, but if you look at a lot of the pieces that brought me, that brought us to that point, that's that was like kind of like the straw. You know what I mean? Yep. And so that's where it just it fell apart again. And Nathaniel and Robert just carried on from there. Revis fell apart completely in 2007 from that try to rebirth, yep. and and that's when Nathaniel and Robert started to begin the yelling. What a! I don't really remember if if the yelling ever finished those songs that were aptly being used as Revis, the vehicle as Revis at the time. Sure, sure. So, what what's going on with those songs, and and have, will they? Do you think they'll ever be released? Even in those like a... those Revis songs. Yes. Because, like I said, unless unless they ended up being morphed and used and, and changed to be the yelling, which I I don't really remember ever checking that band out because it to me it didn't have what made Revis Revis. If that makes any well, anything that the yelling did, which is well, let me just put it to you this way: anything that the yelling officially released um, wasn't ever a Revis song. Okay, so there may and so there may have been little bitty pieces that may have been intended to be Revis songs, but anything that y- the yelling and I respect the guys. I, I, I they you know they respect me. I respect them. I, I would I would never um, uh, put put any of them down. I love them and very and and think that they're awesome. I but anything that the yelling put out was never intended to be Revis. So that's cool. That's all good. Regarding the songs that Robert, Nathaniel, and I recorded with Tommy, no, they will never be released. They aren't good enough to be released. The songs, some of the song ideas are good enough to be redone, but they'll never be released. I might give them to you, but nobody else. <laughs> you might be surprised at how many songs like that that I've, I've gotten through doing this, surprisingly, <laughs> that I could, never, I could never show anyone, which always kind of is a bummer, but... It's it's fun for me like to do where it's like oh I have this thing and then people are like what is that and it's like no nah, it doesn't matter it's just the thing I have <laughs> right um so now more to the, the the flip side of you know we got to talk about places for breathing which like I said is is probably in one of my all time favorite records top to bottom still like I said listen to it all the time but something in my research of just the inquisitiveness of what happened to the band what happened with you. For a while, I couldn't find anything, and thankfully, through the powers of Facebook and, and kind of being able to snoop around and, and try to find you, like, I think initially I found, like, a, a joint account for, like, you and your wife, and I was like, I don't, yeah. I was like, I don't really want to send a question to a joint account, because that just feels weird. <laughs> uh, so then I think I, I found your actual account, and through kind of looking through what I could see without being friends or whatever, because I think your stuff's sort of, like, private, 
I saw that it looked like you are working on some new stuff. Uh, potentially a new record or at least working with some people and you're providing the vocals for it. So what have you been up to since since everything's been kind of done and musically that you can kind of tell, tell us about? Yeah, um, well, I... Uh, last year, I decide. I, I well, let me just put, let me just say this though. I want I want to say this because a lot of people will wonder uh, because it because it really matters what it really matters so that people know what's going on with Justin Holman. Uh, four years ago, I w- was saved. I asked. I, I became a Christian, and my whole life changed. So wondering why I keep saying what I used to be and the way I am now, I'm a lot different. Um, I, I, I was an egomaniac. Most singers are, most musicians are. Um, but my life changed about four years ago. I, because I was addicted to drugs and, and, and just was kind of losing myself. Uh, four years ago, my life changed. I asked Jesus into my heart and I became a different person. I, I did lose my first marriage and a lot of good friends because of my drug addiction. But with that being said and what Christ has done in me, I kind of started a new life and got kind of a new idea of what Justin Holman is. Um, I am, I know that I'm a exceptional singer. I know that I can sing better than most. Um, uh, I know that I can, I, I have something to provide to to an industry that's looking for something that um, with professional musicianship, um, I uh, but last year I, I finally came to the point and had enough support where I want I decided to record a new album. I didn't know what to do, but I had had someone reach out to me and about Revis saying that they were a fan. Um, and his name is Robert Venable. He's a, he, he's a good friend now, but at the time I didn't really know much about him, but he was, um, he's a music producer and engineer out of Nashville. And he, at the time that he reached out to me, he had just finished doing some stuff with, uh, 21 pilots. Um, I reached out to him and I said, Hey, if I can put together the funds, would you help me, um, make an album? I can play guitar, I can sing, but I need musicians because I don't want to go through putting a band together just to do this album. I just want to do the album, and I want you to help me find some guys to do it. And so he said, yes, I will. I'd love to. He was a fan of Revis, and we had been talking just because, um, you know, we just had been talking, and he had introduced himself. And so from December last year until today, um, we have been writing and recording uh, an album for Justin for what's underneath the name Holman and it's a Christian album it's rock and it's also worship but it's got a little bit of everything and and it it's basically done and getting mastered this week interesting are you gonna I can't help but ask this are you gonna go under are you gonna change the name like your last name and make it like w h o l e men Holman no, that that no, just se- that just seems like something that typically you would kind of like flip in the the Christian uh, music landscape. Like things like that have kind of seen where it's like a sort of play on words. It is someone's last name, but it's just all yeah, that, like, um, marketing aspect well, of the things. I don't know. And regarding <laughs> marketing, and you know what, John? I mean, like regarding marketing and all that. This is the beginning of what Holman is. So we just literally did the album, and I and I. And, and, and it's funny that we're doing this interview because I literally just sent it to an, 
um, my old A&R guy and a couple of uh, other peers yesterday. I, I literally just got stuff to send to people um, for the band Holman. I don't know what the future is for it. Now, in the per, in in my in what I dream in my heart, I'd love to uh, go into the Christian rock world and dominate. I want to do it again. I I I I. I love the stage. I love performing for people. I don't know if that's in. I don't know if that's the future. You know what I mean? That's really up to God. That's really up to what other people think of it. Um, but what I am hoping is that the nine songs that I that I wrote and that um, recorded with Robert, um, I hope that it at least gets my foot in the door so that people are like, oh, you know what? Maybe I can get some good co-writers with me and we can get some even better stuff so that I can, can do an officially released album. That's really what – that's really the only thing I, I want to give this thing credit to do. But I don't know what, what, what what's, you know, what's in the future for it. With you having been outside of the music industry for a little while now, is a lot of this that you're sort of about to embark on – does it seem familiar or is so much change that you're just very much like, man, I, I don't even know what, you know, what it looks like now to be in, in the industry. Like, cause I mean, labels are more or less kind of gone. Distribution's kind of weird now that you can do stuff like on your own through uploading your stuff onto iTunes and, and so on and so forth. A lot of times labels aren't necessarily needed outside of the distribution that they may have and or the money to back you and put you into magazines, even though a lot of magazines are going digital. So sure. it goes back to being online. So what uh, – go ahead. Well, I think the main focus for me um, as a professional musician – at this point is to get a good management team and to get a good get to get a good distribution team behind me. I don't know what that means though either because I just I don't even really have the official product yet and so until I get that I don't really know what I have to work with or what the interest is. But I'm not intimidated by it because if anything it's easier than it was. And so um I'm more at the point now to where I'm kind of I've got everything I need to go. I'm just looking at where the best avenues are and what would work the best for Justin Holman to go out again. Um, but I'm not intimidated by it. If anything, I feel more confident in where where I can be because I am wiser now and I am. Um, I think I'm more better prepared now than I was then. What uh, have you started playing out at all or doing? Yeah. Have you? Is it yeah, just more I, like a solo thing, like doing kind of solo, like an evening with kind of a thing? Or do you have kind of some guys you jam with at this point to kind of flesh out your ideas in a live setting? I have some guys that I'm playing with locally um, that are representing the, the Holman Band. They aren't officially parts of the Holman Band, um, but I do appreciate them. And I have been um, – they and we have been having a really good time playing. We I, 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 I've – had two different uh, larger event venues where it's basically been more of a night of worship. Uh, since it is Christian rock, I do I do uh, find that that worship is a really important part of what I do now. Um, but we've had that locally here at Marion, Illinois, and we've had you know a few hundred people show up, and it's been a, it's been really awesome. Um, and we've played home original home and music. I 
have played some other shows as well, and um, it's been great. It's just the beginning of it, so really there's probably only about five or six shows under my belt. But with that being said, it's a lot better. Um, I, I I have a lot m- uh, more excitement now that we've now that I've touched the stage and and kind of dived back into it. It's it makes it more real. It makes it gives it uh, actual life, and so I'm excited about to see what's to come, what kind of tour we can get on, or what kind of um, group we can get, you know, attached to to maybe do some more shows. Does it feel a little bit more rewarding with it just being your thing than than Revis? I. It is. Um, I I never. I always, I always really appreciated the uh, the guys that were a part of Revis. So, like, even even in in me talking about the dissension and the things happening between me and the other guys, I never didn't respect them because I were because we would have never gotten to where we were without every single one of us. Um, but I, I am. There is something really special about doing about having your own baby, you know, and it being your baby and and you getting to just do it the way you want to. It doesn't mean it's going to be the best though either. You know what I mean? There's always that's the one thing that I know is that me doing this and me being the only writer, I know that it limits me. Let's be honest in saying that most of the time whenever a, a, a an artist does a solo thing, it's not as good as the band that it came from. That's a, that's across the board. I don't care who it is. Um from my from from what I've heard of people doing it, and so I know that me doing what I'm doing has limited me. But at the same time, I'm just trying to get a foot in the door, and so my ego tells me that if I get the opportunity to ever do something again with Revis, it will be wonderful. It will be great because you'll have a bunch of mature guys coming together to do something that that is going to be for the best of what Revis was and also for the Christian um, realm if I do something if Holman becomes something more than Holman and actually becomes a band and I get to write with a full band it will be much better than anything that I could do alone and so it's kind of a catch-22 um, you don't know um, <laughs> they're they're both they're both really good for different reasons right you know what I mean uh, so that was pretty much a uh... All I really had as far as the questions about, you know, everything. Awesome. Uh, this is tentatively where I ask if uh, there's socials you want to plug for anything. I don't know if Holman has a Facebook page or any of that stuff yet, if it's still too too soon to have all that. Yeah, I mean, like, well, I mean, definitely look, um, follow me on Instagram. I, I'm always posting stuff there. Um, I mean, some um, it's, it's Holman underscore official underscore music. Uh, on Instagram, and then I do have something on Facebook. It's it's just it's the same thing. Yeah, um, the Holman underscore official underscore music. It's one of those. It's those words. Look them I'll, up. I'll you. find it and then put it in the uh, outro yeah. to this. Yeah, guys, I apologize. No, um, <laughs> and and so so find me on Instagram. Find me on Facebook. I'm always I'm I'm posting stuff up there as I get new things. I'm putting it up there. Um, and just just so you're aware, I. Yeah, I am getting masters for this new Holman, the Christian album that is under Holman. And as soon as I get the masters, I'm going to be uploading it up to Spotify and iTunes. So it'll be available there to anyone that wants to hear what, what this new sound is like. Um, 
it has rock in it. It has, you know, it, although it's Christian, it has a, a rock sound to it. And I know that some some got people that liked Revis will still enjoy this. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know, like I, who knows what the future is? I know that I've got a lot more songs and I've got a lot more of some heavier stuff too that I'm going to be doing for the future with some other guys that I've been working with. But I don't know when that will be done because I want to let this get get some. Um, meet behind it and see what it's going to do first. Right. And then lastly, I always like to end these episodes with a song. So what would you like me to play the episode out to? And maybe give a little story as to why you chose the song, or if it's one of your songs, then, you know, maybe a little something behind that. Um, this, okay. This is, <laughs> this, this puts me, you put me in a spot. Yes. Um, I mean, can it be can it be funny or does it? I mean, does it, it matter? Does, it doesn't matter. I mean, I've okay. Oh wow, there's so much good music, and I listen to so many different things. Uh, I definitely won't plug myself. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't know why. Maybe it's just because I don't want to do that. But and and um, I I would love. I, I think that I, I really want you to play "Living in the Sunlight" by Tiny Tim. Okay. Because I love Tiny Tim. He right. rocks. Um, I, I love obscure music or, or just funny old music that, that was really popular or that, that, um, had a lot, had this like many, many, um, 15 minutes of fame, you know, (laughs) Yeah. there's something about, um, living in the sunlight by tiny Tim that I think is so awesome (laughs) that could, that, that, that just got missed. (laughs) <laughs> um, and, it, and and when and when shows like SpongeBob play obscure music like that and and make people realize that oh you you missed this it makes me it makes my heart smile right so please do that song that song's awesome yeah I definitely will thank you again for your time and, and taking the being so honest about everything and, and just taking the time to uh, to chat tonight so uh, hopefully this wasn't too bad for you. It wasn't bad at all, man. I, I appreciate you having me on, and I hope that we can do something else too again. So that was my chat with Justin Holman, formerly of Revis, currently of the Holman Band. As you heard at the very end, Justin was talking about how he sent the new album of his off to be mastered. Uh, We have a development on that, and the release date for that album will be December 8th of this year. So that is fast approaching. So if you would like to keep up with Justin and this project and kind of see when the pre-orders for the album will be going up and what all that will entail, you can follow Justin over on Instagram at Holman underscore official underscore music. Uh, you can also follow him on Facebook and you just find him at Justin Holman. Uh, admittedly, he doesn't post a whole lot over there, so it is what it is, but perhaps with the new record coming out, he will start rolling out with more uh, activity on the Facebook page. Speaking of social networks and following people, why don't you go ahead and throw me a like on some of these things? You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at John's Untitled Podcast. You can tweet at me at John's Untitled Pod, and you can email me at John's Untitled Pod at gmail.com. Looking forward to another year of doing this podcast. I have some episodes in the can, some guests that I will not divulge at this point, but some really, really great guests uh, that have agreed to do the podcast, and, and I'm very shocked uh, at some of the, the people I've gotten uh, to agree to do it. We just got to wait for some stuff to be finalized so we can talk about it, uh, but this is definitely an example of uh, 
as I said and have said before, where listening to other podcasts and they talk about you creating your thing. And this was something I did kind of on a whim after talking to my friend Christopher Betley, who I have had on this podcast, and it was a really great chat. If you haven't listened to that, go back and listen to that episode. But it is one of those things where in the year of doing this podcast, I have talked to a lot of people that I have admired for a decade plus. Justin is no different. Uh, I have admired his voice and a lot of the stuff that the band Revis did in such a short amount of time and has left a lasting impact on me. And I was kind of shocked that I was able to get Justin. Uh, He may not be in a band that's doing much, uh, but that doesn't make him any less important to me. So if there's anything I've learned in this year of doing this podcast, it is to chase whimsies. If there's something that you want to do, do it. Uh, because it's easier to try to do something and maybe have some some failures along the way or some missteps than it is to constantly wonder what if. Um, This year has definitely taught me that life's not a guaranteed thing, as I've kind of said before in dealing with some of the stuff with my uncle and some of the other stuff I'm dealing with in my life, uh, that your life can change in in an instant. Um, So I really am appreciative of having this podcast and having something to look forward to doing and being creative in a different way that I didn't know I could be. Uh, I guess talking isn't necessarily a creative endeavor, but uh, I definitely always usually walk away inspired and thankful for everyone that I've had on here to have conversations with me. So in all of that, um, I've also enjoyed talking to people across the various social medias and that leave comments uh, on my episodes and hearing that people have had the same questions that I have had for a long time and and hearing the answers that they've always wanted to know. uh, It's kind of surreal. So If I can do it, you can too. Without further ado, going to end this episode, as we always do here, with a song. (laughs) And this is by Tiny Tim, as you heard Justin say at the very end there. Uh, This song is called Living in the Sunlight. Talk to you next week. Hello, my dear friends. Well, here I am on record at last. And it feels so wonderful to be here with you on my first album. I'm so happy, oh, happy that lucky me. I just go my way, living every day. I don't worry, worries don't agree. Things that bother you never bother me. Things that bother you never bother me. I feel happy and fine. Living in the sunlight, loving in the moonlight, having a wonderful time. Having got a lot, I don't need a lot, coffee's only a dime. Living in the sunlight, loving in the moonlight, having a wonderful time. Just think about me, I'm just as free as any daughter. I do what I like, just what I like, and how I love it. I'm right here to say when I want to pray, I'll be right in my time. Living in the sunlight, loving in the moonlight, having a wonderful time. <laughs>
Yes, I need a book. I do what I like, just what I like, and how I love it. Loving at the moonlight, having a wonderful 